Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'd like to welcome you to our Healthcare Sustainability Perspectives on Cost, Affordability and Access virtual event. We really appreciate you all taking the time. We know that it's difficult to find an hour and a half in your day to um, listen to great speakers and provide some of your own commentary. So we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. We also wanna thank the Endowment for Health for sponsoring this event and the work that led up to us deciding that this was the right time with a group of stakeholders to discuss this important topic. I'd like to thank our speakers for taking their time to share their stories and their insights with us today. And with that, I'm going to turn the mic, the virtual mic over to Lucy Hodder to introduce our session today and to introduce our first speaker. Thanks, Joe. As always, so much appreciate uh, the introduction to this great um, program this morning. We're so excited to have all of you here with us to talk about New Hampshire healthcare sustainability. So grab your coffee and join us for a dynamic conversation with our incredible experts about cost, affordability, and access. And we welcome all of you, those of you who provide care, who experience care, who pay for care, all of you here today um, make policy decisions and impact policy every day. So we welcome you. Um, we also extend a special welcome to the many legislators and regulators from New Hampshire who've joined this conversation. So you can follow along in our slides, um, which are available and will be posted on our website. And at first, we really want to acknowledge uh, the COVID pandemic as we all are trying to unwind and experiencing that as well. You know, we are seeing the impact of COVID. It's impacted us in unthinkable ways. It really illustrates why collaboration and trust are so key to our sustainable and trusted healthcare system. And we're gonna be talking a lot about the healthcare delivery system and its costs uh, today. You know, the pandemic exposed weaknesses and our response to it really revealed inequities in our healthcare system and the, and the importance of finding common ground because, you know, as families are again experiencing overt and covert ways that healthcare costs too much and our system simply doesn't work for everyone, we really need to come together and be ready for what the future holds for us. Over the past year, we've brought people together to ask, you know, ask ourselves, ask each other, ask um, patients, what are the key issues that threaten the sustainability of our healthcare delivery system in New Hampshire? And there are many. There are also many good things, uh, but sort of this is what people told us. Cost is an issue for New Hampshire. The health cost burden on the people of New Hampshire is simply unsustainable, and it's overwhelming other economic needs. There may be all kinds of reasons for it, which we could debate, but the fact is it is unsustainable. Costs are unpredictable and seemingly irrational with the high rates of, of, of hospital consolidation and payer consolidation and new drugs. And more than ever in history, we simply need to acknowledge that the overall burden and increase in cost is just not sustainable in the way we approach it right now. We live in an unprecedented time of change. There's so many good actors, but the real question is who's accountable for minding this store, um, minding our healthcare delivery system as a whole in order to do things like address inequities and develop collaborative solutions in healthcare. So one of the reasons we're coming together today and bringing experts from other states is to learn what other states are doing about that. You know, New Hampshire has a short-term budget view, which does not allow for planning 
for long-term healthcare needs of New Hampshire, despite what we know, which is healthcare requires long-term solutions and collaborative solutions and solutions where everyone has skin in the game. Patients need a voice. The people of New Hampshire do not have a voice in how healthcare resources are allocated or spent. And who do we trust? People and businesses keep saying, you know, we find the system too complicated to understand, and therefore we don't trust it. And we don't know who in the system we can trust. Today, with that in mind, today's discussion is really focused on cost and affordability. Why does a conversation about cost growth and high costs matter so much to so many? Today, we're going to hear about why and how stakeholders are partnering with state government to understand and control healthcare costs. And Chris Collar is going to present on what other states around us are doing. Healthcare purchasers, those who are buying healthcare, and employers are seeking to control costs through a transparent review of variable hospital system prices. And we're going to hear from Gloria Sajdev from Indiana talking about just how revealing that transparency project has been and why decisions based on on uh, the results are so key to sustainability in her state. And then we're going to hear from Elliot Fishman, who's advocating around the patient voice, uh, that the price we pay for our health care impacts all of our decisions about care and really is the root cause. So inconsistent prices are confusing for patients and lead to inequity, inconsistency, mistrust, and harm. But as always, we're going to talk about where we can go to try and work together to bring transparency and solutions, everyone, so that everyone ends up in a better, more sustainable place. So what is cost? We're going to talk a lot about costs, and I just want to say it means many things to many people, health cost. It means what is the cost to the federal, state, and local governments to operate healthcare programs. Cost also means what is the cost to a health system to operate? You know, what's the cost to productions of employing people? That's also a health cost. And then also, you know, what are the costs to individuals and other payers of premiums, deductibles, coinsurance, what we pay for our prescription drugs? Um, we don't have a unified definition of cost. And so it really does mean many different things. Um, and it's important for us to have a conversation about what it means and why it matters so much. And what is price, right? Price times use is what we spend on healthcare. So all of those are important. How the price we pay, how much we use, and our overall spending. So price is really what someone pays. You know, if you pay $654 for an MRI at one entity and $3,600 at another entity, uh, that's the price you're paying for the MRI. As we know, you know, just, just very recently, uh, Martin Gaynor from Carnegie Mellon was talking about antitrust and consumer rights and discussing, you know, uh, system consolidations and just noted that and I'm quoting, it's important to recognize that the burden of higher provider prices falls on individuals, not insurers or employers, but individuals. And that's another place where price matters. And what is spending? So spending is just the total dollars paid for a particular group of people to receive care. And the total amount we spend in New Hampshire per patient per month is a way to measure spending. And why do we care? Are we getting what we want or the value we're paying for our healthcare? Are our dollars being used wisely? You know, is the system 
We have contributing our healthcare resources to New Hampshire in a sustainable way over time. You know, healthcare costs have a profound impact on the well-being and financial security of us as individuals, as families, and as a state. And therefore, we want to talk about it and we want to hear from our amazing experts. So first up, of uh, Chris Collar, who is the president of Millbank Memorial Fund. And Chris brings with him an incredible experience, both in insurance and, and healthcare, uh, population health. And he, before joining the fund, he served the state of Rhode Island as the country's first health insurance commissioner. And under his leadership, the Rhode Island office of the health insurance commissioner was sort of nationally recognized for its rate review process and its effort to use insurance regulation to promote payment reform, primary care revitalization and investment, and delivery system transformation. You know, Chris has a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth, which makes him love New Hampshire and want to come back in person next time, a master's from Yale. And he also teaches at the Brown School of Public Health, which means he's great to listen to. So I'm going to let Chris take it away now. Thank you, Chris, so much for your expertise and for coming today. I want to thank uh, Lucy and Joe and their colleagues at the Institutes for Health Policy and Practice for putting this great session together and all their hard work in organizing it. Um, the Endowment for Health for making it possible. Um, my speakers, fellow speakers for whom I'm kind of the warm-up act, and also all the folks um, who've taken the time to um, uh, attend this session to um, think about um, what are some work that can be done in New Hampshire around these sorts of issues. And I will give away one of my punchlines. I think this work has to be collective. There is not a magic hand that's going to um, address the kinds of issues that Lucy was pointing out, that it takes collective work, collective understanding, exactly the kind of work that the Institute's engaged in today. So thanks to all of you for making the time. So this is what the fund is. Um, we're a nonprofit foundation based in New York City, work with state health policy leaders, both in and out of government around issues related to population health. What I wanna do is kind of set the stage for um, uh, Gloria and Elliot. I wanna talk about cost trends nationally and in New Hampshire, start to ground our work. Um, I wanna talk about this idea of minding the store, um, uh, kind of a colloquial phrase for just oversight of what is going on um, around healthcare. Um, if the, um, the market doesn't work and there's ample evidence that it doesn't, and the market's not going to work going forward, even if the market does work, you need some sort of oversight. You need general measurement to understand what the trends are, particularly in a world as complicated as healthcare. And so I'm gonna make the case that that um, is best done at the state level as it relates to costs, and then to remind us why we're engaged in the work. So um, I'm gonna um, repeat a little bit of what Lucy was talking about, just this idea that a price is what we pay, so let's get our term straight because we use price, costs, and expenses kind of interchangeably. A price is what we pay for something when we buy for it, whether it's a unit of service like a hospital day or a procedure or an insurance premium. The costs are the expenses associated with providing the service and that varies. So for employers and public programs, the price is, the cost is what they're paying. It's the total expenses for the health benefits. Cost is in the eye of the beholder. So when employees talk about healthcare costs, they're talking about what comes out of their wallet, whether it is at the point of service or as part of their premium. 
for providers, we're not quite sure what the costs are. It's an internal um, uh, uh, cost allocation process. As Gloria will talk about, sometimes costs arise to the level of prices that are available to what you can get. But I do want to emphasize that cost reduction is not the same as cost shifting. The cheapest way for me to make my healthcare less expensive for me is to make you pay more. Whether I'm an employer and I'm shifting costs to the employee or whether I am a healthy person who's trying to shift costs to the sick person, we all learned about with the Affordable Care Act. And I think what um, we're talking about today is sustainability overall costs. The, so the overall costs of the system, regardless of who's paying that at the time, in the end, we all pay for these costs. We pay for it in taxes, in premiums, in out-of-pocket costs. And so what can we do to look at costs overall and to have a healthcare system that is sustainable? Because so long as costs continue to rise faster than inflation, we've got to find some way to pay for that. And as uh, Lucy was talking about, that takes money away from other important services, whether it's my wallet, whether it is uh, public um, expenses to pay for things that can improve health, um, whether it is uh, the, um, it's inflated prices that we pay. So we're looking today at the overall costs, not my particular costs, whether I'm an employee or an employer. So I think if you want to sort of understand um, the, the, the cost, the, if you accept the frame of overall costs, this is a really important slide from the um, Peterson um, Kaiser Family Foundation Health System Tracker, because really our healthcare expenses can be divided into three big buckets. There's what Medicaid pays, what Medicare pays, and what um, commercial uh, employers pay. Roughly, you can think of these, each of these is about a third of the revenues that go into the healthcare system. That's really crude. But um, the stories from, this is from the 1990s, the 2000s, and the 10s. Um, the um, uh, green is Medicare, the light blue is Medicaid, and the dark blue is commercial. And what I want you to pay attention to, sorry if this sounds like a professor, but that's what I am part-time, is the fact that while everybody went down um, uh, in recent decades, 2010 to 2018, uh, Medicaid and commercial went down significantly more in terms of what, what's, on the, what's on the horizontal axis is um, average annual increases. And so look at the growing difference between commercial, the dark blue, and Medicaid, the light blue, and Medicare, the green. That, that's significant. I don't think it's even the absolute amount. It's the difference between what's happening, the average rates of increase for Medicaid and Medicare and for um, uh, commercial. And I, what that says to me is that the public payers running up against the wall are clamping down on their expenses in ways that commercial is not. Now we can talk about whether that Delta is justified. Providers will say that, well, we need more from commercial because Medicaid and Medicare aren't paying their fair share. But what it says to me is that Medicaid and Medicare are clamping down and commercial is not. So there's a little bit of cost shift going on. And you know that's what um, I see Gloria bouncing in her chair. She's gonna be talking exactly about that because her folks are picking up 
picking up this dime um, when the public's clamped down a bit. So you had um, Lucy talk about um, expenses are functional price and utilization. Um, what you've, I actually start with the right-hand slide here. This is commercial price increases because we said that's what's happening. Um, indexed to 2014 from the Healthcare Cost Institute um, by type of service. So the black is total, and then you see the types of service, pharmacy, prescri um, uh, prescription drugs, inpatient, outpatient, and so on. Look at those rates of increase. Then if you look at the left-hand side, it's divided between increases in price and increases in utilization. Utilization is relatively flat, increasing since 2014 in total, only three, four, five percent. Look at the increases in price. So the story that's emerging is that commercial is paying for increases in healthcare and they're paying it mostly in terms of prices, not in terms of utilization. Our people are not getting sicker. Our doctors aren't even prescribing more stuff. It's what the price of each service is going up in the commercial sector. And commercial, remember, as Gloria's gonna say, those prices are negotiated. Medicare and Medicaid set their prices. Commercial, it's negotiated in a black box between insurers and um, providers. Commercial employers and insurers are paying over twice as much for hospital services relative to Medicare, 200 to 250%. They're paying slightly more for outpatient than for inpatient. And there's enormous variation by states. You have a fair amount of price inflation for commercial compared to um, some of your other states. The red state there is Rhode Island. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. But this is really important work that's only come out in the last few years that actually documents what employers are paying on the commercial side relative to Medicare. Previously it had been hidden inside a black box. So this is the story that starts to emerge. We have the public sector, Medicaid and Medicare, that has to answer to a budget clamping down on its healthcare costs. They're focusing mostly on price using managed care, but they are setting provider price rates and not worrying as much about utilization, although, or, or using their managed care entities to manage some of that. Providers, therefore, seeing less revenues and less rates of increase, I should say, less rates of increase from Medicaid and Medicare are focusing on their commercial lives, their negotiations with insurers. They find that this is easier to enhance because insurers are not price setters the way that Medicaid and Medicare are. They can expand their services. And as um, Lucy noted, they're consolidating to increase their leverage in these negotiations with, ins uh, with insurers. This is happening nationally. At, um, it's a, it's a repeated pattern. The number of consolidations in health systems is increasing, both horizontal, meaning like providers merging together, and vertical, hospitals becoming health systems. The majority of health system revenues now come from outpatient services, not from inpatient services. What's happening in New Hampshire, what we're talking about today. So this is data also from the Healthcare Cost Institute that compares New Hampshire to the U.S., for commercial prices, the focus is only Medicaid and Medicare. You've got four lines here. The heavy blue line is overall per capita spending for commercial healthcare costs. You can see that since 2014, New Hampshire has risen faster than the US average. And then you see um, uh, changes in utilization, which is the green and price, which is the orange. And you can see that New Hampshire appears to have both price and utilization issues. 
um, according to the Healthcare Cost Institute data, um, utilization increases are growing a little bit faster in um, New Hampshire than nationally, and you have the same price trend as other places. The third line, the gray line, is inflation, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But healthcare per capita healthcare costs continue to rise faster than inflation, which is why we're all gathered here today to talk about how is this sustainable going forward. You do not have the same story, however, among your neighbors. If if you look, I took Massachusetts and Rhode Island compared to New Hampshire. The way to read this is um, the, these are average or no total rates of increase for the study period 2014 to 2018 um, by four different cost drivers: um, uh, hospital inpatient, hospital outpatient, prescription drugs and um, uh, uh, doctors. That's what professional services mean. The gray line is the overall US trend. The blue shade is your particular state. So if you start with New Hampshire on the right, you can see that it was at or bigger than the US averages um, for all four of these price categories. Compare that to Massachusetts, which had lower rates of increase on outpatient, but higher than um, national averages on inpatient professional prescription drug. Rhode Island has a very different shape. It clamped down considerably on inpatient outpatient costs. That wasn't by accident. We'll talk about that in a little bit, um, but has a prescription drug problem. So the whole point of this is that you do oversight to understand um, what's going on in your particular state, and then you respond to the particular state issues we think it's a particular challenge in the commercial sector, more so than in Medicaid and Medicare. The implications of this I would put forth, and I think that's why we're gathered today, is someone has to mind the store. The participants are not able to self-police themselves. The market is not self-correcting. New Hampshire has done some really seminal work around transparency of price. That's necessary, but um, I don't think it's sufficient as the data would show. And um, we're not necessarily talking about heavy duty regulation. I'm making the case for oversight here, for measuring what is going on and that that's a government function. You need some, we measure employment, we measure economic growth, we should be measuring what's going on in our healthcare economy. And there are degrees of oversight. You can simply do measurement in public education using data. You can police the outliers. We're gonna talk about some of that options. Or you can actually, if, if this is your regulatory climate, talk about price setting or putting conditions on the behaviors of providers. So in the case of healthcare costs, what mining the store means, I would divide it in two ways. Um, efforts to oversee provider supply, certificate of need um, requirements, which have been um, uh, sort of waxed and waned over the last 30, 40, 30 or 40 years to uh, give oversight to the capital expenses of providers, and then change of control review. Lucy has talked about the number of consolidations that are happening here and the need for um, oversight of what the implications of that consolidation are. Because let's be clear, consolidated systems result in higher prices. The evidence for that, and, and um, you talked about having Professor Gaynor speak, is irrefutable. When systems merge, prices are increased. And so if we want the, the putative benefits of system consolidation, we have to think about how to guard against the risks associated with it. If you really, but in addition to provider supply, you can also try to oversee provider price in the commercial sector. And we'll hear Gloria talk about employers attempts to do that. Maybe employers need some help. Um, you can have health insurance rate review in the um, small group and individual markets, which is pretty, 
pretty common. We do that in New Hampshire. You do that in other places under the premise that small groups and individuals don't have the leverage to look after themselves. Rhode Island has expanded their health insurance rate review authority to include large group as well and to expand the standards by which insurance is reviewed, not just for financial solvency and consumer protection, but also for directing health plans towards affordability. That's a very strong, not only oversight mechanism, but directing the health plans together towards affordability. And Rhode Island has some pretty result, pretty impressive results um, coming from that, kind, trying to get the health plans on the same page around what the priorities are for improving the system as a whole, thinking that no health plan can do it by themselves. Finally, you can do all payer rate setting if that's what you want to do. I'm not, I don't think that's right for every provider climate, but Maryland has gone for 40 years now with all payer rate setting where Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial all pay the same rates. Gloria might be out of a job in the, if she worked in Maryland because the rates that Blue Cross of Maryland pays are set through a, a rate setting commission. And by the way, in that setting, Maryland um, nurtures Johns Hopkins Medical Center, which last time I checked, provides pretty high quality care. So the notion that rate setting is incompatible with high quality care doesn't hold true in Maryland. Regardless of what kind of oversight, I would make the case that you have to measure what's going on in your system. And so we wanted to call particular attention to the efforts in these eight states to measure overall growth in health system per capita costs across Medicaid, commercial, and Medicare. It um, starts with legislation or executive order to convene what's usually called a healthcare cost commission. They measure their baseline cost growth trends in Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial, and they set future targets for how you want those per capita costs to grow. They then measure performance relative to those targets and analyze the drivers um, in uh, what, what's causing that. The logic here is that healthcare is local. It happens at the state level. There are a lot of levers at the state level. And that regardless of your regulatory strategy, we have to build our understanding of what's going on. We have to understand what's happening in the healthcare system before we decide what sorts of policies we wanna overtake. Often for providers, they have latched onto this in some of these states because it's a compromise to rate setting. They see the system, they see concern about commercial prices. And so this is sort of a fallback. That was certainly the case in Massachusetts where they said, let's at least measure what's going on. Um, and I would argue, and we, we're the disclosure, the fund is working in all these states, that this is fundamental. Regardless of what your policy um, uh, uh, prescription is, you've got to understand what's happening to increase the knowledge. Maybe you don't want to do a full Maryland rate review, but let's at least try to understand what's happening. So this is what you get. You get performance over time and a measurement relative to goal. Now, I, this is Massachusetts. This is, look at how Massachusetts is now exceeding the benchmark. Does that mean the Massachusetts gives up? No, when you're overweight, you don't throw out your scale. You gotta figure out how to get to your target weight. So watch what Massachusetts is gonna do now that they're over their target. And what you also get when you measure is understanding. So this is detail from Rhode Island's data around, well, look at 
um, our our Medicaid, our Medicare rate in Rhode Island is actually below our target. We've got problems in Medicaid and commercial, and the dots indicate where particularly the big green dot, uh, the big blue is pharmacy, the big green is hospital outpatient. So Rhode Island is starting to focus on those areas as being their cost drivers because the health plans can't do it by themselves and employers can't do it by themselves. I think this is where I'll, uh, the main place, if you wanna work on this, this is a capture, probably Elliot's gonna talk about this, of what's happening with worker contributions, what's happening with family care, um, premiums and what's happening with personal income. I don't know of a state where we continue, can continue this trend. And if you wanna make the argument, Lucy and Joe were saying, well, how did the states get here? They got here by making this argument that this is not sustainable at the state level and we have to do the work together. And I think this is how you marshal public support for this cost trends work. And it's gonna take leadership. You're gonna to have to have leaders, whether they're governors, legislative leaders, employers step up and say, we are tired of shifting costs to our employees. We're tired of defunding our other government services. We're tired of having costs shifted to us. I think you can frame this as, this is just about transparency and it's about measurement. We understand that New Hampshire has a different philosophy of government than the People's Republic of Vermont. This is just about measuring what's going on. And then you can decide what are the policy perspectives you wanna take. And this is last slide, why we care. Dollars that go into healthcare are not dollars that we can use to save people who are dying earlier and dying at younger. We are losing people to midlife mortality. When our lifespan goes down, it's not because we're having more old people die, it's because we're having more people in their 30s and 40s die. And you understand this in New Hampshire, you've been through your opioid crisis. This is preventable. We have to address our healthcare costs if we wanna work on the things that improve our quality of life. Thanks, Lucy, Joe, I hope that was helpful. That was super helpful, Chris, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So I have the, the great pleasure of introducing uh, Gloria Sashdev, who is the president and CC CEO of the Employers Forum of Indiana. Um, she has a passion for healthcare affordability and is involved in many efforts to try to bring affordability in healthcare to uh, employers and to employees. Uh, she's a pharmacist by training and is an associate professor at the Purdue College of Pharmacy and an adjunct, adjunct assistant professor at Indiana University School of Medicine. I'm gonna let her talk about the work of the forum and, and how this all fits in, but I will say that I had uh, the great pleasure to meet her when Gloria called me one day and said, I am interested in data. And if anybody knows me, knows that when somebody calls and says, I'm interested in data, we're like kindred spirits. So I was so pleased that she was able to join us today. We've uh, commiserated and, and worked hard together on some data efforts in Indiana. Um, and I've been pleased to see not only the interest in data, but the use of it. So I am I'm pleased to have Gloria here. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I'm going to hand it right over to you because I know you have some wonderful things to say. Well, thank you so much, Joe and Lucy. And Joe, thank you for all of your help. We are interested in data and you've just been instrumental in helping us um, launch an all-payer claims database here in Indiana, at least in statute. And we look forward to standing that up with your continued guidance. So thank you. Um, I am Gloria Satchdev. I'm President CEO of the Employers Forum of Indiana, and I'm going to share some information about how employers are trying to align payment with the value of services provided. 
We pay for everything pretty much in the United States except for healthcare based on the price and the quality it offers. If I want to purchase a car or a fridge, I look up the quality, I look at the price, I'm making this, you know, I make my own determination if I want to pay for something that um, I believe to be higher quality. And that's how the free market works. It works when you have price and quality transparency. And in the healthcare space, we just haven't had that. We, um, as Chris clearly illustrated, we're just paying for healthcare. You know, it's the prices that are driving up the high cost of healthcare. And the cost of healthcare, while it falls on employers, ultimately it falls on employees. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So this is, if I had to pick just a couple of slides to illustrate the problem, there are so many, and Chris showed some great trend slides. But this is annual, this is average annual employer and worker contributions to their premiums for the last 20 years. So in the dark blue, you have employer contributions to their healthcare premiums, and then you have worker contributions. And as you can see, it's just been increasing year after year after year. And so now an average family in America is paying over $21,000 just in premiums. This doesn't include out-of-pocket expenses. If we looked at family premiums just in the past 10 years, it's gone up 55%. And as Chris illustrated, workers' earnings have not kept up with it. So we see workers' earnings increasing, but they're paying more out-of-pocket in premiums. But we have a lot of high deductible health plans. Benefit plans have really changed in the last 10 years. And people are paying more and more out-of-pocket in addition to their premiums. And this is the problem. You know, it's just not sustainable for employees or employers. So the economic impact here, um, and I think there's been some formatting issues with the slides as they've come over, but that first box is supposed to be titled employers. Um, so it does limit employee salary wages. Um, when they're paying, you know, employers have a fixed budget. So when they're paying more and more, four, five, six, seven percent year on top of year for healthcare, they have less to pay for salaries and wages. And there have been studies done by Rand Corporation, uh, by Chris Whaley uh, recently that show that this directly impacted, impacts uh, employee wages. These bullets here are from our employers. So the Employers Forum has 21 self-funded employers that serve on our executive committee. We are multi-stakeholder in nature. We have hospitals, health plans, benefit consultants, and about you know, 62 or so organizations. And we're all working together to move forward, you know, move forward and, 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 and align payment with the value of services provided. I should have mentioned earlier, we are a not-for-profit 501c3. It limits hiring the best talent. And that as, as the US becomes more global, this is a significant problem for employers. It decreases the financial reserves. We just saw through COVID when employers, you know, all businesses expand and contract over time um, and they need reserves to, you know, to manage that. Not just hospitals need reserves, everyone needs reserves and this dips into it. Decreases funds available to invest in business expansion. We've seen a lot of decreasing and, and just reduction of benefits. It's easiest when you sit there and go, okay, I have a fixed budget. It keeps, it's gone up 30% in five years. What am I going to do? 
We're not going to provide pensions. We're not going to provide robust benefits to retirees. What's been shocking to me in the past year is we see a a significant trend in employers saying we're no longer going to cover spouses if they can get insurance through their book, you know, their job. Um, but what's the next step? You know, we're not going to cover. They just have to limit it. So um, it was a, there was a time when employers really were you know, moving forward into the market saying, these are the rich benefits that we offer and they just can't offer those benefits. Of course, it impacts employees um, in the way of contributions, out-of-pocket expenses, mental stress. And employers have switched, you know, because they can't absorb these costs, they are, are moving things more and more to the employee, but the employee, and they're saying, well, you just need to shop for services, shop for the best quality at the best price. But the employees don't have access to best quality or best price, and neither do employers. We're starting to emerge in this space. I think we all need to take the reins here. Um, at least purchasers need to take the reins here. And I include purchasers being employers, Medicaid, Medicare, and employees, so the general public, and really start aligning prices with with um, with the value of services provided. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the RAND studies, just a few slides. This was um, work that we commissioned. We came up with the idea at a Starbucks um, and looked to see who, who's doing anything in the space of price transparency. The work that had been done up to that point, the most in-depth work that we had seen came from uh, Chapin White, and he was at RAND Corporation at that time. So we contacted him and the work was funded uh, graciously by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And we've done a series of what we call, I call RAND studies. Of course, they do lots of research and all types of studies, but uh, the researchers put these big long titles on there. So I'll, you'll see me call them RAND 1, 2, and 3.0. But these studies, uh, they came about because we had employers that had a that, so employers in Indiana had a footprint in other states, the ones that did, said, why are the prices so high in Indiana? So when I came on about six years ago to the forum, my question was, you know, are prices high in Indiana and, and how high are they? And that was the question we were trying to address. So RAND 1.0 was published in 2017. It just focused on Indiana. We looked at 120 hospitals. And the way we got this data, and these are the first, it was the first study ever done in the country that was publicly available, where we showed prices at the hospital level. So it had been done at some, there have been a couple of studies at the city level, some studies done at the state level, but this was really publishing hospitals by name and saying what your percent of Medicare was by inpatient and outpatient. And then we, we divided out further out as we had more information. So I don't know what I thought. I thought maybe we would be paying 30% more than Medicare, you know, commercial insurance. Uh, employers were paying 30% more than Medicare prices for the exact same services at the exact same hospitals. RAND 1.0 showed us that in Indiana, we were paying 272% of Medicare. So that was just shocking. It was tidal waves throughout the state. Everyone needed about a year to digest that, verify it, the insurers, the hospitals, the employers. We wanted to benchmark ourselves, and so I invited employers across the country to participate in RAND 2.0. 
And I was just hoping for our surrounding states because the CEOs of the hospitals had said, everyone cost shifts to employers. It's not just us. I said, well, this seems kind of high. And, you know, do you think there's room for improvement? And they said, yes, we couldn't decide what the right percent of Medicare was. So I wanted to benchmark ourselves to continue that conversation. RAN 2.0, we had 25 states. This was published in 2019. And of the 25 states, Indiana was found, much to my surprise, to be the highest priced state in the country. Well, at least of those 25 states. So RAN 3.0, we had 49 states and the District of Columbia, we excluded Maryland for the reasons Chris mentioned. Um, this looked at inpatient outpatient prices, just like the prior two studies did, but we also included professional fees in this one. This was also a three-year study, just like the prior ones. But in this study, we had over 3,000 hospitals and um, about $34 billion in healthcare spend. The data sources are all the same. We go to self-insured employers, and that's how we get the data. We were grateful to have six all-payer claim databases participate in it, and that's really helpful because the data comes in and for research purposes in one clean file um, instead of going to each and every employer working with each and every uh, carrier or TPA and then sending it to RAND for analysis. We also had some plans, um, for example, United Healthcare in Indiana that were really supportive of price transparency and for their fully insured book of business gave us their claims. This was totally funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, in its entirety, employers had the option of purchasing a report just of their employees to see where their employees went, which hospitals they went to, what their percent of Medicare was, et cetera. Now, I've mentioned percent of Medicare a bunch of times because it's just easy to understand. But in the RAN 2.0 and 3.0 studies, we also have standardized prices because we know county hospitals, academic medical centers, they get paid as they arguably should, they get paid more than in hospitals that don't have as much DISH, don't have as much, you know, so disproportionate share, they don't, they're not seeing as many Medicaid patients, or they're not um, affiliated with an academic medical center and involved in training. So standardized prices is more an apples to apples comparison, and those are available for everyone to, to view at their leisure. So you saw this slide, I wanted to plant on here where New Hampshire was in your surrounding state. So you get an idea, as Chris mentioned, that New Hampshire really does seem to have, you know, it's, a, it's an outlier within its region. So while Indiana is sixth highest in the country for hospital prices, New Hampshire's up there um, compared to, in Rhode Island, you know, they do things differently as does Maryland and their prices are quite a bit lower. So New Hampshire's 16th highest in the, of all the states, and they're paying an average of 264%. Now, I want to make, make it clear that this is what the hospital gets plus the professional fees. So you can separate that out and say, what is the hospital getting and what are the physicians getting? And that's what we mean. When we say facility, we mean hospitals. When we say professional, we mean physicians. In Indiana, we learned for the first time, it was shocking, and actually uh, the Harvard group, they, they did it first. They published their study in May 2020. Ours came out in September 2020, but they showed professional fees first, and we followed up, and our, our studies uh, 
correlated beautifully, but we are paying in Indiana, our physicians fourth lowest in the country at 131% of Medicare. So I really appreciate the fact that in your market, you're paying physicians more. Now, Rhode Island's intentionally gone out, as we heard, and paid primary care more. And that's why you see them at 256% of Medicare. Um, But you can see their inpatient and outpatient are quite a bit lower. You know, with this RAND report, it's just a huge Excel spreadsheet that anyone can download. And you can see whatever hospitals you wish of these 3112 hospitals across the country. And so this is just a pivot table looking at, uh, you know, the first three columns are all New Hampshire hospitals. And then you can look to see what some of the other hospitals are. You can see one of them in particular is quite the outlier on inpatient at 478% of Medicare. That seems really high. I mean, that is high. So um, it just helps you, you know, do a deeper dive to say, well, why, why are some of these inpatients so high? But on some of them, it's really the outpatient prices that are driving the cost. And interesting, the, the one on the far right there, you know, all of the prices are almost identical, which I haven't seen before. So that, that was really interesting to me. Please note, these are not charges. These are what the prices, the negotiated prices between the carriers um, and the providers and the hospitals. So these are really what employers or the carriers are paying on behalf of the employers. If you are a purchaser and you're trying to figure out, well, what are the prices and and um, what what's the quality? So you want to look at quality. Every employer, I will say after three years, once we got over the shock of prices, we wanted to have quality aligned with prices. People want to go to the best quality at the best price, best quality at the lowest price. That's how we shop in America, best quality at best price. And we need that transparency on price and quality. We just have to have it. We need to make that happen for all Americans and all employers as well, and all purchasers. I mean, this is this shouldn't be a secret. People that say, oh, quality is proprietary. Quality is not proprietary. Prices are not proprietary. This is what this is what it is, and this is how we need to shop for care. So we have to have the information. So I just put on here, you know, from highest to lowest, uh, you have inpatient, outpatient, f- professional fees. But if you total all that up, it's facility plus professional. And then these are the CMS star ratings. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services posts uh, hospital quality star ratings. Their last file was just published in January and it's freely and publicly available. The best is five stars, the worst is one star. The good news is you have a lot of four and five stars. My caveat on this is you can't really judge or you shouldn't judge a hospital by one number, you know, they provide a lot of services. And as Chris mentioned, they are huge now, oftentimes having vertically and horizontally integrated. So they may be great in cardiology, may not be so great in orthopedics. Another one might be great in GI. And so we really need to unpack that information and do a deeper dive. But this is a starting place. You can find all of this information on the employerptp.org website, and you can download this Excel spreadsheet and use it however you like freely. As I mentioned, a Harvard study came out by Michael Cherno and colleagues, and they looked at state level at 48 states. They excluded Maryland and South Carolina, and their results correlated very well with ours. We are doing a RAND 4.0 study, and here is the timeline. 
Again, I think the formatting changed when they posted it. So sorry about these colors. That's not what I sent. Um, and we are in process right now of recruiting for RAND 4.0. The more employers we have, the more robust the data is for their marketplace to use. So we welcome you know, all, all employers and all, um, all, all, pay, all payer claim databases. For those employers that are uh, sending their data to an APCD, that's wonderful because the APCD in your area can then just work with RAND Corporation to, to get that information sent. So where do employers employees go from here? As I mentioned, we want to align payment with value. And we've done quite, a, we have some information on price. The federal government is now requiring hospitals to post their prices. Um, same with insurance companies. Quantity is also known as utilization. And we can, we can easily find that from claims data. Quality is where we need to spend some more time. Again, this is looking at the star ratings. We took our 3,000 hospitals and we said, which of them are less than 150% of Medicare, which is low, our lower price, which is the middle price, which is the high price, and, this, and, and order them by star rating. So in the United States, we have this kind of sense, you get what you pay for, right? And so if you're paying a lot, you must be getting higher quality. There have been dozens of studies to show that's not the case. This is just one illustration of that. So you can clearly see that you can find four and five star hospitals that are lower medium price, and we need to start going there. And that will create the competition with everyone else. What you don't wanna do is go to these one and two stars that are really high priced. So looking at benefit design levers based on value, we have employers that now they have this information, they are doing something with it. So what are they doing? They are working with their carriers and TPAs, um, developing narrow and tiered networks. We are running to some resistance. I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A here. Um, direct to employer contract, and because of the resistance we're hitting in number one, we see a lot of our employers doing direct to hospital contracting. Uh, also, many of them are working with third parties to help identify COE, centers of excellence. I like to also call them providers of excellence because as we mentioned, a hospital may not be great at everything. So you might need to start looking broader at the providers. Bundle payments and episodes of care is also a hot topic. And we haven't quite gotten there um, as, as some employers in California and other places have, but reference-based benefits is someplace I do think will end up. So change is possible. We work in all four of these buckets, but it's foundational upon having price and quality transparency. So as Joe mentioned, I love data. I'm a pharmacist by background. Everyone probably on this call is data oriented. But not only do we have to look at, at solid data, we have to hold the entire you know, supply chain accountable. And I mean everyone. There's no reason purchasers should be at 100% at financial risk for their benefit consultants that are advising them and making decisions on the you know, information that they're providing to the TPAs and the carriers and providers, everyone. I We're talking um, a lot about putting performance guarantees and contracts here. We talked a little bit about benefit design, payment models, and then policy. We've done quite a bit just in the past year in the policy space. And honestly, not everyone is just, you know, they've been, we, we have this, this entire infrastructure that isn't working and um, all stakeholders aren't just going to willingly give that up. So we are 
we do need policy to be to be one of the levers that we that we pull on. Okay, so uh, Lucy, that was my last slide. Thank you so much, and I look forward to the Q and A. Wonderful, and thank you so much, Gloria. Um, incredible slides, and and your translation was just uh, phenomenal for um, food for thought. And we'll follow up with some great questions. Um, we are now so lucky to have uh, Elliot Fishman uh, uh, come to us today and talk um, from his perspective and that of his colleagues around how all this is impacting patients. So Elliot is the Senior Director of Health Policy um, at Families USA, which is a policy analysis and advocacy group. Um, they develop um, advocacy and policy at state and federal levels and work with departments and other members um, of senior leadership. Um, and he works across the country on these compelling issues. He leads Family USA's analytical and policy development work, focusing on universal coverage, transformation of healthcare delivery and payment, and, and achieving equity um, in health care uh, access and outcomes. Um, he is also a Medicaid expert. Um, I knew him when he was at CMS. He has held uh, uh, very important roles at um, CMS in um, overseeing waivers and also CHIP and um, is very familiar with New Hampshire as a result of that. Um, he brings a wealth of knowledge um, uh, to us today and is going to be talking about how healthcare costs harm the American consumer. So thank you, Elliot, for all the work you do every day and your colleagues as well and for joining us today for this important discussion. Lucy, it's really my pleasure, and I'm, I'm very grateful to you and to the University of New Hampshire for pulling this panel together and uh, for the opportunity to present on really a, a not just a, a critical consumer protection issue, but as we have all learned over the last year and a half, a critical public health issue. And um, I do hope to have the opportunity to uh, referenced the work that Lucy and, and then Governor Hassan were involved in uh, with me at the federal level towards the end of that of the presentation. I, I do think it, it is uh, one of the models that um, we can look to both at the state and federal level. I'll spend a couple of minutes talking as both Chris and Gloria did about uh, documenting how the system is failing us. Uh, and and uh, I'll try to emphasize the uh, consumer facing elements there. And then I wanna speak to just the huge opportunity that we have at the federal and state level. level. And I, I think some of the alignment of recommendations that you're gonna see across the three presentations today is an indication uh, of that opportunity to build the right sort of tables to both oversee and to collaborate at the operational level in healthcare and to get the incentives for innovation right and to constrain uh, price increases and fight provider consolidation. If you look at uh, the uh, dark line at the top, that is how much more we spend than any other country. And obviously we are a great outlier. If you look at the uh, kind of light blue line at the bottom of life expectancy table, just note how much we are diverging. We used to be kind of in the middle of the pack towards the low end in the 1980s. 
we are just the, the gap in life expectancy has uh, opened very wide, despite the fact that we spend so much on healthcare. This is how that plays out at the consumer level. Cost is simply for people with health insurance. And note that uh, with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, while there are still um, tens of millions of people who lack health insurance in the United States, the vast majority of Americans have health insurance and still huge percentages are reporting that cost is a barrier to access, access to physician services, trade-offs between uh, basic life needs and paying for medical care. 30% of people almost nationally, and that is significantly higher in a lot of states. I think it's um, about 25% in New Hampshire either don't fill prescriptions or are splitting medications or otherwise not following physician orders when it comes to the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, this is sources of bankruptcy. Medical costs, again, for the most part for people with health insurance are still a huge driver of personal bankruptcy in the United States. Elliot has frozen until he comes back. This slide is talking about how the average family health insurance premium costs 25% of the median household income. And so every coverage debate um, revolves around the fundamental unaffordability of those premiums. Um, healthcare delivery has changed um, in, in the community. Um, charitable organizations are large revenue maximizing corporations. And so I think what Elliot's talking about here is just how much our families contribute to the healthcare cost um, and healthcare spend um, over time. And um, our healthcare delivery systems, while nonprofits for the majority are, are growing bigger and bigger. And I know there's lots of questions about the variation between out-of-pocket costs, how much can consumers control, regardless of whether we can control and make choices, we still fund um, a, a large portion of um, our healthcare costs. Health is not a level playing field in the United States. And um, women of, of color are much more likely to die in childbirth or have children die in childbirth. These are absolute uh, uh, public uh, statistics um, and living realities. Um, African-Americans are 50% more likely to die prematurely from cardiovascular disease. That's 50% more likely. Um, and people of color in general are 20 to 50% um, more likely to experience poor health outcomes. Those are the statistics. Um, and uh, I know Gloria and Joe would say they, they are so critical to look at when you're talking about policy. And um, also the demographic and moral imperative, um, which is that a majority of kids 18 and under are children of color. And by 2045, our nation will be a majority nation of color. Health disparities result in- Hi, Elliot. Loss Elliot of life. Hi, Elliot. I've just been carrying on as if I were you and was just at the last bullet on this slide. Okay. I just wanted to draw a contrast here. I'm sure many of you have been following the news this week around the approval of Biogen's drug. Uh, the brand name is Aduhelm essentially uh, at best a marginally effective drug for Alzheimer's um, and yet it's going to be uh, potentially an enormous financial uh, bonanza 
for a pharmaceutical manufacturer. And contrast that with the extraordinary level of uh, mortality um, for birthing mothers and postpartum mothers in the United States. And we should all be asking ourselves, if you were a investor, would you put money into the marginally effective Alzheimer's drug that is potentially going to earn tens of billions of dollars? Or would you put money into um, public health intervention, interventions, population health interventions, uh, community-based care for at-risk uh, pregnant mothers and postpartum mothers in the United States, and yet what potentially has the greater public health impact? Right. So part of what is broken in our system is our inability to regulate price. But a related part of what is broken in our system is that the incentives are all screwed up and that the way to make money is not by addressing our uh, really acute um, and from a global perspective, really outrageous levels of unaddressed health need and uh, unaddressed racial inequities and class inequities around access to health and access to healthcare. So uh, this is a bit of a deeper dive in terms of which parts of our healthcare sector are absorbing and driving our cost problem. And just note the disproportionate role that hospitals play. And also note uh, in parentheses, how, how little we put into public health. Public health is 3%. It doesn't even get its own slice of this donut. It, you, you have to pull out public health in order to see it at all. Um, hospitals are 33%. If we look within hospital payment, and this is something that uh, Chris and Gloria noted as well, you're seeing a growing gap between private payment versus Medicare and Medicaid. Right. And, and I think what we are seeing is the effect, first of all, of consolidation on the inability of private payers to get hospital costs under control. And second, we're seeing the ongoing effectiveness of administrative price setting in Medicare and Medicaid. This is just a, a, a source list behind uh, the data that we just presented. None of this information is new. Right. Looking at that first bullet, I, you know, this information has been coming out the whole time that I have been in healthcare and uh, I am no spring chicken. This is, is really extremely well-documented and it's a matter of the political difficulty of taking on a major employer, a large industry, and it's, it is not a matter of knowledge. It is a matter of political will at the state and federal level. This is at a high level, the direction that we need to go in. If you want to make money in American healthcare now, it's about market power, manipulating billing systems, in especially in, in pharmaceuticals and medical devices, locking up intellectual property and keeping it, figuring out a way to price in a monopolistic way, and then at, at the individual provider level, generating a lot of high margin procedures. Those are toxic incentives. Those are dangerous incentives. That is just bad for consumers. It's bad for our public health that that is how you make money in American healthcare. The way that would be good for us as a country and us as individual consumers for our health systems and our 
pharmaceutical companies um, and our individual providers to be incentivized is that they would be incentivized around our individual health, our uh, population health, specifically that there be incentives built in around reducing the racial disparities that Lucy kindly co-presented with me when my internet went out and to have both mechanisms for price transparency and regulation, that's something that Chris and Gloria both spoke to, and incentives for quality and innovation and have structures that foster quality and innovation at the uh, regional and local level. I'll, I'm gonna talk a, a bit about that with my last couple of minutes. I would think, and Families USA thinks about two levels of solutions, one structured around making the market function better, right? Both of these assume a continued mixed payment system. It's not to say that Families USA opposes moving towards more of a uh, uniform national payment system, but um, we certainly do not want to defer the whole conversation to a Medicare for all conversation. So this, this is structured around our current mixed payment system. So one set of solutions has to do with, first of all, prohibiting anti-competitive contracting. There were a number of elements that passed out of Senate uh, help committee on a bipartisan basis in the last Congress around anti-competitive contracting site neutral payments, moving to all peers claims databases um, and real interoperability and then starting to structure on a multi-payer basis. And I think there are tremendous opportunities uh, at the state level in this regard uh, around payment and delivery system reform models across commercial and uh, Medicaid and ultimately Medicare payment. I wanna note though, that a lot of those models have to do with building bridges between physicians and hospitals and community mental health providers, which are very necessary. We need to be careful that those do not then create new incentives for uh, vertical and horizontal consolidation in ways that will just drive up prices. Um, and good intentions are not enough here. Like we, re we really need to have robust protections built into those models. This is thinking about regulatory pathways. So first, what is immediately in front of us is the possibility of major healthcare elements in a federal legislative package. This is a hour to hour drama that is playing out on Capitol Hill right now. It's certainly taking up most of Families USA's time and attention. Will there be a major prescription drug pricing element there? And in particular, will that prescription drug pricing structure um, create uh, pricing signals around true innovation and reduce the incentives on pharmaceutical manufacturers to evergreen their products and, and gain the intellectual property system in ways that don't help anybody and are just pure rent seeking. Are we gonna move towards more automatic coverage, reduce the uh, number of people who are eligible for coverage who are not enrolled? Um, that's another possibility in this short-term legislative package. I think those are the two big things that are relevant to our conversation that are on the table. But really beyond the short-term legislative package, first, is the new administration going to really go for it around orienting 
Medicare, Medicaid, Marketplace, uh, the, the three programs that uh, are led out of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services around health equity incentives uh, and around changes to care delivery uh, that can't just be uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Responsibility, CMMI. It's the, essentially the smallest part of CMS. We really need to start seeing through the Biden administration, through their leadership of the Medicare program itself, through uh, their work with states on Medicaid, like that is where the hundreds of billions of dollars flow through. Will you see the Biden administration, which, you know, uh, Biden campaigns on a public option? Um, will you see them really pursue that or otherwise expand the scope of public payment? Going back to that slide that I presented and uh, both Chris and Gloria presented similar slides about how uh, public payment, especially for inpatient care is much more under control than private payment is. Can we increase the scope of that, the public's slice of the pie as part of getting costs under control? And this is where I'm gonna shout out Lucy to the work we did in New Hampshire. So as states try to really take on population health, and as CMS has started to think about this in CMMI, you wind up, A, trying to put primary care at the center, trying to build regional tables where you can get substance use providers, behavioral health providers, physical health providers, both um, physicians and hospital systems, together with government to work through system design. Right, and New Hampshire wound up moving at that structure, trying to take on its um, substance use crisis. And uh, Oregon, I think, is the national model, and they've been doing it now for almost ten years, and trying to reorient their healthcare payment around that kind of a table. CMS has been experimenting with these kind of directions in a variety of ways. So that kind of regional putting everybody together who interacts with a given person and trying to build some uh, system level management of costs, not just the transparency that Chris and Gloria were speaking to, but real management tools at the regional level and at the state level needs to be where we are going. And I think we have a real opportunity with a new administration in DC, working with governors uh, and, and governors working with their health systems and their uh, consumer advocacy community and state, we really have an opportunity to make dramatic progress in the next couple of years. And the question is if we will. And with that, I am done. Thank you so much, Elliot, uh, for sharing that important information. And now we get to the fun where your questions get to be answered. We will be posting the slides in the original format submitted by our speakers on our website so that you will be able to access them. And we thank you so much um, for the interest in the detail as they put so much into it. You know, um, uh, Chris, I have a question for you um, and, and we're gonna consolidate a number of the questions that have come in. But, but first of all, can you tell us, you know, managing cost growth is really hard. Um, is it worth it? And I'm gonna ask you as well, when you're answering that question, what is the interplay between commercial prices, Medicare and Medicaid? Is there really cost shifting? Um, how can you really make it work at a state level? It looks like Rhode Island did. How did they do it? Lucy, I'll do the second question first because it's a little bit more empirical. 
The, the cost-shifting argument says that glorious clients pay more because Medicaid and Medicare pays less. So the argument is that we must get more from employers because Medicaid and Medicare doesn't cover our costs and is covering less of our costs over time. So um, that that is, I would contrast that argument with, we get more from employers, we as providers, not because we have to, but because we can, meaning that we have the power to negotiate for that and we will increase our power to negotiate. Now, in, empirically, um, an advisory commission to Congress called MedPAC regularly looks at the adequacy of Medicare payments and the percentage of costs that are covered. They um, uh, conclude that Medicare pays at or slightly below costs, that that ratio has not changed appreciably, certainly not to the extent that Gloria's data looks or, or has documented it's increased. Um, the second point is if you look at Gloria's data, that array of average commercial costs as a percentage of Medicare by state, if Medicare and Medicaid were consistently underpaying, then that ratio would be the same across all states because Medicare has the same payment ratio, same payment programs, which take into account uncompensated care, teaching, geography, rurality, costs of care. And so they would be consistently wrong. But what you found is that Indiana is really high and places like Rhode Island, Arkansas, Blue Cross, um, Michigan are really low. So what do those low states relative to Medicare have that Indiana doesn't? What we have found is it's some sort of pretty aggressive oversight like in health insurance, that gets me to your point, and actually dominant insurers who historically have been able to kind of rule the roost and sort of set a culture for how negotiations happen. So that's the issue of, does, is, there, is, there, um, is there a cost shift required to commercial? The evidence would say no, in spite of what the American Hospital Association says, yes. To your first question of, is it worth it? Yeah, I mean, we don't have an alternative. You know, I don't, I don't think that I don't think that Rhode Island's approach directly contrasts with Gloria's at all. I think if Gloria and Indiana could get some state level oversight and data or an analysis around what's going on with cost trends in general, they would welcome it. They might not welcome a full Maryland all payer rate setting, but that's not necessarily what Elliot and Gloria and I are advocating for. We're advocating for state level action around measuring and understanding the cost drivers and then policies that are appropriate that I think Elliot's right, always have to involve multi-payers. You just, you cannot send the payers off on their own and say, we trust you, go negotiate this stuff because payers don't have the control against consolidated providers. So I don't, I don't, I don't think Massachusetts, the leading states that are looking at healthcare cost costs have certainly solved this by any means, but we don't have a better idea um, and unless there was the political consensus for um, a full Maryland, all payer rate setting and single payer. And I don't hear anybody here advocating for that. We're a little bit too pragmatic. You know, Elliot's working on prescription pricing reforms and out of network. He's got to get that. He's got to slay those dragons before he can move on to the, uh, the bigger battles. Right. Thank you, Chris. And now Gloria and then Elliot, I'm going to ask you what, what will happen to our consumers and families if we don't get our arms around this. Um, but Gloria, I want to turn to you, data that you shared and discussion of what employers are caring about and trying to manage. 
Um, tell us a little bit about this question. There's a lot of questions about shoppable services. So you all talked about how much of this cost growth and this price impact lands on the consumer, on the patient, on us, paying premiums, paying out-of-pocket deductibles, um, and our employers uh, who take it on instead of paying us higher wages, right? Because they're paying so much in healthcare. So tell us a little bit about whether shoppable services and choice play in your employer um, playbook. Um, and if not, if they aren't the answer, tell us how employers are really trying to get back um, the, the uh, control of um, uh, the, the value here and really direct care, primary care, um, so that uh, individuals don't have to do it all on the backs of, of shoppable choices. Great question. And um, first, I'd like to say I agree with everything Chris just said. Um, and shoppable services. So there have been employers have been providing some price transparency. There have been several studies that show that when employees, the consumers have information on price and quality, they still kind of, they don't really use it. It's less than a 5% use and uptake. And the reason is you just kind of go where your physician, your primary care physician tells you to go. You can go around the corner and get your lab done or, or, or get your MRI done. You don't pause and stop and say, let me look up, you know, where I can go get this information. And so back to what Elliot was saying, you know, a focus on primary care is really important for steerage. So if it was publicly available and we knew where the best value was, so best quality at best you know, cost, or I'm going to say price because utilization is not the problem, best quality at best price, then, and that information could be provided to primary care providers, they could help with steerage. And steerage simply means they're going to make a referral to the appropriate place. They don't have any information about that, number one. Number two, we don't, in Indiana, 70% of, over 70% of our physicians work for hospitals. So what I just said doesn't even work here because they are typically referring in-house. So what our employers are doing in the shoppable service space is they are making the decisions or helping the employers and encouraging employers through benefit design make the right decisions. They want to know which is the best quality at the best price. So if you select that as an employee, um, they will simply have, they, they have a lot of options. They can have no out-of-pocket expenses. They can have reduced out-of-pocket expenses, but essentially they have a benefit design in place that says, if you pick tier one, which is best quality, best price, and you make the choice. And in Indiana, we're a red state, right? We're, we're uh, a dark red state. And so, Consumer choice is very important. And the only way people can really shop for services is if they have price and quality transparency. The shoppable services, the 300 shoppable services the federal government has required hospitals to put forward. We've done an analysis or in the process of doing analysis in our state and have talked to others about that. It's not quite there yet. It's not in the usable format because there's so many discrepancies. Um, and it's very complex. I don't know if you've been and looked at any of those spreadsheets or um, tried to get some of that information and actually compare. It's quite challenging. I am hopeful that with further regulation that will it'll become more standardized. 
Thank you, Gloria. And you're talking about the regulations that are actually requiring hospitals to make their prices public and and soon um, in, uh, health insurers as well. Um, uh, so uh, thank you, Gloria, for that. I, I think, um, Elliot, it would be really helpful to hear from you as to you know, sort of the consequence of not getting our arms around this. Um, you showed some really interesting slides about wage growth um, being depressed. Um, and, and also, you know, how does that impact all of this uh, mental health access um, and mental health parity? So in terms of the consequences of not getting arms around this, um, first of all, uh, I think all of our slides showed how much we're already in a bad situation, right? We already have high rates of bankruptcy. A lot of uh, people um, facing barriers to care now because of costs, um, still a significant number of people without health insurance. Um, it's hard to imagine a situation where um, premiums for family coverage are say at uh, you know uh, $28,000, $30,000 a year instead of in the high teens or, or low 20s. Um, that's just becomes like a, a, a simply a, a catastrophic situation um, when you have uh, family premiums uh, upwards of, of 30% of median household income, right? I, I just don't see how uh, vast proportions of Americans can pay for healthcare under that scenario. Um, or we're talking about uh, dramatic increases in taxes to pay for it or cuts in other government programs to pay for it. And uh, we can do either of those things, right? Um, I certainly cannot imagine the good people of New Hampshire supporting dramatic increases in taxes to pay for uh, essentially the same health care that we have now at higher prices. As to um, mental health and mental health parity, uh, it's uh, a part of our system where all the problems that we're talking about are on steroids, right? And especially um, the number of people without adequate health insurance is even higher, and in particular, people with uh, Medicare and Medicaid actually uh, have real problems accessing mental health care. Um, it is hard to find uh, mental health providers who take Medicare and Medicaid, even if, if you have it. And uh, Medicaid, which covers a lot of people uh, with mental health needs, is heavily reliant on a very overwhelmed group of safety net providers. Uh, you don't see a lot of non-safety net mental health providers who also take Medicaid, right? The way you do, like there are plenty of pediatricians who take some Medicaid too. There aren't a lot of uh, pediatric psychologists who take some Medicaid too. You just have like safety net pediatric mental health providers. So it is a huge problem um, and one that it feels like we as a country are just scratching the surface on providing a solution to. And uh, it, it is a, a major driver of our broader um, public health issues. Uh, and uh, certainly those declines in life expectancy uh, are substantially driven 
uh, by mental health and substance use issues. Um, so uh, it's, it is a huge priority for us and an area in which we need to stop spending so much money on cardiac procedures in hospitals and start putting some of that money into preventive mental health interventions. And I know, um, Elliot, thank you for that. And I know, Gloria, you're working to do that um, in Indiana. And I know, Chris, you are working to do that with um, several states to try and make sure that some of this effort around cost is really a shift to where people need it in primary care, mental health, um, and, and access services. Um, so we are running out of time. We have significant questions for all of you, such dynamic information you've provided all of us. We thank everybody who's attending, um, and we will continue this conversation in New Hampshire. We are going to make um, the presentations available and continue uh, to respond to these type of questions on the ground here in New Hampshire. Um, we so appreciate your expertise, and we look forward to when we can all be together in person and working together to solve these problems in the very near future. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Joe. Um, thanks, Chris, Gloria, and Elliot. And have a wonderful day to those of us who attend. You have our emails. Email us, and we'll keep this going. Thanks so much.